Thanks, Chris. Uh, I mean, you basically just preached the sermon already, so I guess we can go to the last song. <laughs> but no, it'll be good to hear it again. <clears throat> that wasn't planned. Yeah, we didn't even talk, but yeah, good job, Chris. <clears throat> All right. Well, like I said, there's not an insert this week, uh, but there is a blank page on the back, so if you want to take some notes. <clears throat> That is there. <clears throat> almost over my almost three-week cold, so bear with me. <laughs> All right. Well, the title of the message this morning is The Most Powerful Man in the Universe. And we're in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 26. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 861. If you don't own a Bible, there's some Bibles on the back table. You can feel free to grab one of those. All right. Well, I might be dating myself a little bit here, um, talking about my childhood, but there were, uh, there were many amazing things about growing up in the 80s. Uh, one of those is that the cartoons were amazing, okay? Um, I don't really watch a lot of kids' cartoons these days, but I don't really have to because I know they're, they're not as good as the cartoons were in the 80s. Uh, my favorite cartoon, which I had a bunch of the action figures for, <clears throat> excuse me, was He-Man. And what little boy didn't want to be He-Man, right? In that fabulous introduction, I just want to like hum the tune, it's so good. In that fabulous introduction to each episode, the viewer is introduced to Adam, Prince of Eternia and Defender of the Secrets of Castle Grayskull. And he says, fabulous secret powers were revealed to me the day I held aloft my magic sword and said, by the power of Grayskull, and then he holds his sword out and says, I have the power. Then he turns his cat Cringer into the mighty battle cat, and he says, I became He-Man, the most powerful man in the universe. Well, despite the appeal to the self-proclaimed most powerful man in the universe who fights off the bad guys and defends the good guys, reality is, is that that is not how the universe works. And little boys and little girls don't grow up to be like their favorite action figures from cartoons. The reality is, is that our lives are actually much more complicated than that. We spent the past few months in the middle of a narrative that is much more exciting than He-Man, with a hero of much greater significance. As we've been seeing, Jesus is the hero of this story, not us. And there are people in these narratives that we, as the readers, are meant to relate ourselves to, mostly to see that we, like them, are in desperate need of a Savior. Today's passage is a combination of two events, both with incredible significance, as we see Jesus continue to display his power and authority. But we're going to be introduced to a few new wrinkles today that we haven't yet seen in the first four four plus chapters. There's going to be a major emphasis on restoration, restoration of two individuals both to God and to others. There's going to be a significant claim by Jesus of his authority to heal and to forgive sins. This idea of 
Forgiveness of sins is going to be a new thing that we see today. And then there's going to be direct opposition from religious leaders to Jesus' ministry. So let's dive into the text, Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 12 through verse 26. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose and be- up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word speaks to our hearts. Your word exposes our hearts, just like Jesus exposed the hearts of the religious leaders. And Lord, we ask that you would come and meet with us this morning, that you would show us our need for you, that you would show us our need for cleansing, that you would show us our need for forgiveness, and that we would turn to you, that we would run to you, for cleansing, that we would run to you for healing and forgiveness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first let's take a look at verses 12 through 16 and see Jesus' cleansing and restoration of this man who is full of leprosy. We see right from the get-go how Luke, the physician, describes this man's condition. He says that he is full of leprosy. I can't imagine what this man must have looked like. Um, There are 
as we'll be looking at things in the Old Testament about people coming with maybe a, a spot on their hand or a spot on their head being looked at by the priest. But this man is full of leprosy. There was no hiding it. There was no denying what type of condition he was in. And we don't know exactly if this leprosy that Luke speaks of here is, is the same thing as what we know as leprosy today. But for sure we know that it was some type of skin disease. It was something that was very um, hard to live with. And it, it caused great pain and great um, social and, and religious ostracism. And there was uncleanness associated with it. So this is a very, this is a very bad situation that this guy is in. So he's, he's basically cut off from God, and he's cut off from other people. He would not have been welcome within the city limits. So it's interesting here that Jesus is, is preaching in some city, and this man somehow makes his way to Jesus, right? He, he gets past the authorities. He gets into the city where he's not supposed to be around other people. He definitely wouldn't have been welcome in public places of worship. And his approach to Jesus is risky, it's desperate, and it's faith-filled, And we see that as he falls on his face before Jesus and he begs Jesus, he pleads urgently with Jesus. And notice how he does that. Notice how he pleads with Jesus at the end of verse 12. He doesn't question Jesus' power or ability to heal. He wonders if Jesus is willing to make him clean. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. In other words, Jesus, he's asking, are you willing to hear the request of someone like me? Are you willing to hear from this social outcast? Are you willing to consider using the power that I have heard you have, as word has been spreading around? Are you willing to do something about this? In the parallel account in Mark chapter 1, Mark adds that Jesus was moved with compassion or pity. Jesus is moved with compassion. He stretches out his hand and he touches this man. And he says, I will be clean. I am willing to do something about it. I am willing to grant your request. Be clean. And the crazy thing here is not only did Jesus have compassion on him, Jesus immediately by touching him made himself ceremonially unclean. The moment Jesus touched him, He basically was banishing himself from places of worship, from being in the city, from being around other people. This was a crazy act by Jesus. Then he does something really interesting. He tells him to go and show himself to the priest and to make an offering as Moses commanded as a proof and as a testimony to them. So Jesus here is honoring the ceremonial law that is laid out in Leviticus 13 and 14. It's right in the middle of the book of Leviticus, in the, in the middle of a bunch of chapters about ceremonially, being ceremonially unclean. Uh, it's that part you get to in Leviticus when you're reading through the Bible in a year and you're like, oh man, this is like tough sledding, right? <clears throat> but I would encourage you to, to go back and read it later today. Go back and read Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, and it lays out all the laws for what people who had these various skin diseases were to do and how they were to be restored and you'll see the 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 ritual that was in place they basically had to be quarantined for a week and they would then they would come back to the priest and if there was an improvement 
the priest would pronounce that they were clean. But notice that the priest had no power in himself to make the the person with this disease clean. The priest couldn't cleanse them. He could only declare that that they were clean. He could declare that their sickness or or disease had gone away enough that they were now welcomed back into fellowship with God and with the people of God. So the person would have to bring an offering in. The priest would have to make these sacrifices on their behalf. And there's some interesting connections with sacrifices of atonement there, which you see a couple chapters later in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. So there's all these things wrapped up with with cleanliness and forgiveness of sins that is happening there in Leviticus. But this is a very burdensome process, right? It takes time being, being basically cast out for a whole week. It required financial commitments to be able to bring these offerings. And notice what Jesus does. He heals the man immediately. But again, he doesn't release him from his lawful duty. And I believe this shows the importance of the restoration to God and to the believing community. Now we need to be careful here, excuse me, not to make an analogous application to the Christian life. This isn't saying like, Jesus heals our spiritual leprosy, and then we need to go jump through some, some ceremonial hoops, right? Like, okay, Jesus says you're forgiven, but now i got to go be baptized, and, I, and we should be baptized. But it's not saying, like, unless I, until I do these extra things, I'm not really clean, right? I'm not really right with God until I jump through these ceremonial hoops. That's not, what's, that's not what Jesus is saying here. But I also think what we can learn from this is that our spiritual cleansing should not just be viewed as a one-time event, right? We don't just say, oh, my sins are forgiven and now I can just do whatever. I don't have to worry about seeking after God. I don't have to worry about pursuing holiness in my life. When we confess our sins to God and to others, we are living out the reality that all of the Christian life is repentance, as Martin Luther famously said. We're living out the reality that we need to continue to come to Jesus for cleansing, It's not just a one-time thing. And like this leper, we have a high priest who continues to be compassionate, who continues to reach out his hand and to touch unclean sinners, who is willing to respond to our urgent pleas for mercy as we fall at his feet over and over and over again. Excuse me. There's another reason why I think this is a very beautiful thing. That Old Testament ritual, those Old Testament demands, they're now done away with. And Jesus knew that they were about to be done away with when he sent this leper to go to the priest. When Jesus died on the cross and the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, he opened up access for us to go into the Holy of Holies. We don't need a priest to go in before us. We don't need a priest to make sacrifices on our behalf. Jesus has allowed us to approach God with boldness and confidence because of his sacrifice for us on the cross as our great high priest. Friends, we are the spiritual lepers who either come to Jesus for our cleansing or who remain in our uncleanness, trying to jump through hoops by figuring out ways how to cleanse ourselves. There is no end to the exhaustion of trying to be clean by our own efforts. Jesus' invitation for us is to come, 
No matter how full of spiritual leprosy and no matter how unclean you think you might have made yourself by all the things you've done that you feel ashamed of, it doesn't matter. The invitation is to come, to be cleansed by Christ and not by your own efforts. Well, as we've seen already in chapter 4, The word about Jesus is starting to spread like wildfire. See that in verse 15. The report about him went abroad. Great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Jesus is attracting a lot of attention, which we'll specifically see in the next event. But notice how Jesus responds to all of this attention. Humanly speaking, this response is totally counterintuitive. Look at verse 16. But he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. Now this word here for desolate places is the same word that's translated wilderness in chapter 4. When Jesus is tempted by Satan. When he is led out by the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. Led by the Spirit. Out into the wilderness. Strengthened in order that he might face the temptation that's coming from Satan. That's where Jesus is. Out in the wilderness. And that's where he goes to pray, right? He goes out to a desolate place to be with the Father, even though there was a lot of work to be done. I don't know about you, but I personally have a huge idolatry of efficiency. I want the fastest, easiest, most effective way to accomplish a task I would have been the person planning how to maximize Jesus' time and energy so that he could heal as many people as possible in as short a time as possible. But what does submission to God's sovereign prerogative look like when he doesn't do things the way that we want him to or the way that we expect him to? These folks had to be seriously disappointed when they saw Jesus leave town, right? And go out into a desolate place. Can you imagine having been one of these people? You've been hearing reports, maybe probably for weeks, about Jesus. You packed up your most precious things and, and you said, hey, I'm going to see this guy, right? Maybe you traveled. Maybe you traveled for days to go see him. And then you roll into town and where is he? He's gone, right? What's going on? But maybe, just maybe, this was a foretaste of what Jesus told his disciples when he told them in John 16 that he had to go away. Do you remember their reaction? It says they were filled with sorrow. But he said, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then he said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. It is to our advantage that Jesus returned to the Father. That he is seated at the right hand of the Father. That he is interceding for us in prayer. Which I think, again, is we get a picture of that here, right? Of him going away and being with the Father and praying. It was to the advantage of the people who witnessed the leper's cleansing that Jesus went away. 
And does it not also point us to our need to withdraw to desolate places to pray, to meet with our Heavenly Father, to lay down our plans, to lay down our desires for efficiency or self-sufficiency, to submit ourselves to the cleanser of our spiritual leprosy, and to realize that we are not the Savior and we can't solve all of the world's problems. Let us pray. Let us pray. Let us pray. And Jesus' retreat in prayer was not only for the good of those gathered and a reminder for us of our need to pray, but for him it was in preparation for the showdown that is about to happen. Again, we saw in chapter 4, after Jesus preached to the Jews in the synagogue in Nazareth, we saw that he faced open opposition by those who were gathered as he exposed them for not recognizing God's mercy to the Gentiles. They, tried, they drove him to the edge of town and tried to throw him off of a cliff. But now, for the first time, Jesus is going to face a concerted effort by the religious leaders of his day to oppose him and to seek to take him out. And that's clear at the beginning of this section as Jesus is teaching, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had come from all these villages in Galilee and Judea and as far as Jerusalem. Now, thinking about this in terms of what this looks like in this jurisdiction that they had, think about it, don't do this, but think about it as like running from the cops, right? Um, If you commit a crime here in Oshkosh and you're on the run, the first thing that's going to happen is that the Oshkosh Police Department and probably the Winnebago County, right, if, if it gets, give, gets that bad, like, they're going to be coming for you. That's, that's Galilee, right? That's the local of, officials that are coming after you. Judea, that's like, okay, this is getting bad. The Wisconsin State Troopers are, are showing up, right? We really got to get this under control. Well, Jerusalem is the FBI coming in, okay? This is the big guns. They're coming to get you, and you better look out. That's what's happening here. Religious leaders have come all the way from Jerusalem to see who is this guy and what he's talking about, and they want to take him out, okay? Jesus, humanly speaking, is in big trouble when the authorities from Jerusalem show up. But I love how Luke throws a little jab in there that highlights the folly of their efforts. At the end of verse 17, it says, And the power of the Lord was with him to heal, right? These guys think they're big shots. These guys think they got the power and authority. No, Jesus has the power and the authority. So this showdown that we're about to witness here, it's going to be a true test of who has the power and authority to speak and to act on God's behalf. Is it Jesus? Or is it those who have come to oppose him? So let's find out. This encounter here unfolds in dramatic fashion as these men bring their paralyzed friend and they stop at nothing. They probably had to walk up some steps that were on the side of the house to get up on this roof and they tear through this roof. They tear through layers that were built together to to construct this roof and they probably by ropes, they lower their friend down in order to get him right in front of Jesus, face to face with Jesus. And it says that Jesus sees their faith, and no doubt that was the faith of the friends and the faith of this paralytic man himself. And he makes a stunning declaration. 
He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And when we first see this, 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 this should strike us as a little bit odd. Now, first of all, there has been no mention of sin yet in this passage. And there really hasn't been much mention of sin yet in Luke's gospel. <clears throat> the other thing is, you know, why is Jesus talking about sin here with this paralyzed man? Uh, we know from other teachings of Jesus and, and some of the other gospels that just because someone has a physical ailment, that doesn't mean that that person sinned. It doesn't mean that their sin is a direct result of or that their ailment is a direct result of their sin. Now, that could be possible, but Jesus kind of shuts the door on that. Also, another thing is that this is the first time we've seen the words faith and forgiveness in Luke in the English, English translation. But it's actually, interestingly, not the first reference to forgiveness that we've seen. And here, here in, in chapter 5, in these verses 20 through 24, we see the, the verb form of forgiveness used four times. But remember when Jesus stood up and read from the Isaiah scroll in the synagogue in Nazareth, in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, if you've got the Pew Bible, it's just on the page on your left, or if you're on a screen, you can scroll up to chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He stood up and he read from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. You remember what he said? Look there with me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And remember we said this this quote here, these two verses, this is a framework or a paradigm for all of Jesus' ministry that's to follow. He was setting the stage for what he was about to accomplish and the things that he was going to do in his ministry. You see, there's, a, there's a word here that's used twice that's very important. Verse 18, it's used twice in verse 18. He says, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and then to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The word here for liberty is the noun form of the word for forgiveness. And it's used 17 times in the New Testament, and this is the only place that it's translated liberty. And it's a good translation because it's what Isaiah was saying, right? But in the other 15 uses, this word is forgiveness. Okay? So liberty and forgiveness, release from captivity, are, contain the same meaning Being set free is the same thing as being forgiven. And the paralytic's greatest need was not release from his physical condition. Jesus could have just first said, you're you're healed, right? Stand up and walk. But his captivity was not to the mat that he was lying on. His oppression was not the social ostracism that he faced as a paralytic who was completely dependent upon the help of others just for basic human survival. No, my friends, he was captive and oppressed by sin, like all of us. And his greatest need and ours is forgiveness of our sins, so that we might be released from our captivity and freed from our oppression. 
Jesus' declaration to this man is further evidence that he is the servant of the Lord whom Isaiah wrote about. He is the long-awaited Savior and Messiah. But when Jesus makes this bold claim, the opposition ramps up even more. Notice the reaction in verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, they got it half right. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who is this who claims to be God? They got that one wrong, right? But their question, who can forgive sins but God alone, was right. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And it's interesting here, we see from Jesus' response, they're they're not actually having this discussion out loud. They're actually saying it in their hearts, which which Matthew tells us. They're, They're thinking these things in their hearts, but Jesus knows it, right? He knows what they're thinking because he's God. Because he's omniscient, he knows all things. He's actually displaying his power and authority here as he's just confronting them, saying, I know what you're thinking. But he calls them out. And notice how he calls them out. He doesn't answer their questions directly, right? He doesn't say, well, actually, guys, I'm the son of God, so technically it's not blasphemy. Or he doesn't say, of course, God alone can forgive sins. In typical Jesus fashion, he questions their question with a couple questions. His first question, why are you questioning in your hearts? He exposes their sin of unbelief. And they are busted, right? They have no answer to give. The second question, which is easier to say, verse 23, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. Of course, the answer to this question is, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to prove it, right? Jesus could walk around to every person he ever met saying your sins are forgiven, and there's no way that he could ever prove it. There's no way that the people themselves could, pr- could prove it. But if Jesus says, rise and walk, and the man doesn't rise and walk then Jesus is exposed as a fraud, right? But then Jesus drops the hammer on them in verse 24. He says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. This is the verse that should jump off the page at us. Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man who has authority on earth to forgive sins is the thing that each person in that house was meant to go home remembering, especially the religious leaders. Jesus answered their objections by showing that, one, he is not speaking blasphemy because his claim to be God is true, and two, nobody can forgive sins except God alone, and he is God This claim, again, this is a massive claim. It would not have been missed by the religious leaders. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man for the first time that we see in Luke. It's his favorite title for himself. He uses it 25 times in Luke's gospel and over 80 times in the gospels altogether. 
And this is a direct reference back to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is shown a series of visions. Starting in verse 13, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. It's the same word for authority that Jesus is using here. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Notice the parallel there to what we see in the next couple verses in Luke 5 here, 25 and 26. The reaction of the crowds, the amazement, right? His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is standing there in the middle of this house, surrounded by debris from the roof that has just been torn apart. This paralyzed man is lying in front of him on on a mat. There is a crowd of onlookers who are pretty anxious to see what's going to happen as the tensions mount between him and the religious leaders. And Jesus simply claims to be the Son of Man. The one to whom God Almighty, the Ancient of Days, gave dominion and glory and a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. This is a massive claim by Jesus. He is claiming to be the most powerful man in the universe. Take that, He-Man. But this is not like the world's strongest man competition power. He's not pulling semis with a rope or flipping cars or anything crazy like that or whatever the first century parallel to strongman competitions would have looked like. He is displaying his power to forgive sins, something that only one man can do, the God-man himself. But then he backs up the unseen reality of his power to forgive sins by saying what is harder. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the paralyzed man is physically healed. Instantly, right? Immediately, he picks up his bed, and he goes home glorifying God. But more important than his physical healing, he is spiritually healed and forgiven. He is liberated from his captivity to sin. He is freed from the oppressive weight of trying to be good enough. Reminded every day by his physical conditions that he is not strong enough, that he is not powerful enough to get right with God and others. Beloved, what a picture of the gospel this is. In both of these encounters, Jesus compassionately comes to us in our untouchableness and in our uncleanness. He reaches out his hand and touches us and he makes us clean. And then he meets us in all our spiritual paralysis and deformity and doesn't demand that we stand up straight and put our best foot forward. No, he forgives us. The true healing that we all need comes from him. I love how 1 John 1.9 captures the reality of both these events. We've already read it twice in our confession and in our assurance of pardon. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins and to 
Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I already said before, that's not just a one-time thing, right? That's not just, oh, I confess my sins once when I get saved and then, yeah, well, whatever, the rest of my Christian life, you know, just, I try to, I try to, try to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, right? No, it's this ongoing need to be forgiven and to be cleansed and to continue to come and fall at the feet of Jesus and say, you are the only one who can heal me. You are the only one who can forgive me, who can make me stand up straight, right? Who can let me go free from the oppression, from the captivity that I've been under. You are the only one who has liberty for my condition. The most powerful man in the universe was he who took on human flesh, became one of us, not that he might ultimately obtain a powerful victory in human terms, but that he might obtain victory in the weakness and humility of death on a Roman cross, that we might be cleansed and forgiven, that we might become citizens of that new and better kingdom, the one that shall not ever be destroyed. Friends, this is your hope and mine in Christ and in Christ alone. Let us pray. Father, wherever we might be coming from this morning, whether it's someone who has never turned to you and confessed their sins, someone who has never bowed their knee before you, someone who has never experienced the cleansing and the healing and the forgiveness that Jesus gives, or we ask for those who don't know you that they would see that it is Christ and Christ alone who forgives and cleanses and heals. God, for those of us who have been Christians, some for very many years, and maybe have grown cold to our need to continue to come, to continue to confess, to continue to come to you for healing and cleansing and forgiveness. God, would you light a fire in our hearts? Would you rekindle a desire for you, a desire to meet with you, a desire to, to have the, the hand of Jesus touch us, compassionately reach out to us and remind us that we are loved, we are cared for, we are cleansed and we are forgiven, not because of what we can bring to the table. God, if we've been trying by our own efforts, if we've been trying to, to cleanse ourselves, if we've been trying to find forgiveness by our own efforts, Lord, show us that it is not in our own hands, but it is in yours. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder that we all need. May we look to Jesus, the most powerful man in the universe. May we fall at his feet in worship and give our lives to him. We pray in his name. Amen.
Let's stand as we sing our last song, number 57.